Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Matt Graub. He is the Executive Vice President of Technology at Qualcomm Technologies Incorporated. Graub joined Qualcomm back in 1991 as an engineer. He also served as Qualcomm's Chief Technology Officer from 2011 to 2017. He holds a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering from Stanford and a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Bradley University. He holds more than 70 patents. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Byron. It's great to be here. So what does artificial intelligence kind of mean to you? What, what is it, like kind of at a, at a high level? Well, it's the capability that we give to machines to sense and think and act uh, but it's more than just writing a program uh, that, that can, you know, go one way or another based on some decision process. Really, artificial intelligence is what we, we think of when uh, a machine can improve its performance without being reprogrammed um, based on um, gaining more experience or being able to access more data. If it can get better, it can improve its performance then we think of that as machine learning or artificial intelligence. And so it learns from its environment. So every, every instantiation of it heads off on its own path, learning its own, off, off to live its own AI life. Is that the basic idea? And that's what... Yeah, that, what, so, you know, for, for a long time, uh, we've been able to program computers to do what we want. Let's say you make a... Uh, a machine that drives your car, you know, or does cruise control. And then we, we observe it and we go back in and we improve the program and make it a little better. That's not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're talking about the capability of a machine to, to improve its performance in some measurable way without being reprogrammed necessarily. Rather, it, it trains or learns from uh, being able to access more more data, more experience, or maybe talking to other machines that have learned more things and, and therefore gets, uh, improves its ability to reason, improves its ability to make decisions or drive errors down or things like that. It's, it's those aspects that separate machine learning and these new fields that everyone is very excited about from just traditional programming. You used, when you first started all of that, you, you said the computer thinks. Were you using that word casually, or does the computer actually think? Well, that's a, that's a subject of a lot of debate. Now, I need to point out, um, in my experience, my background is actually signal processing and, and communications theory and modem design. And... A number of those aspects r relate to machine learning and AI, but I don't actually consider myself a deep expert in those fields. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion. I, I know a number of the really deep experts. There's a lot of discussion on what think actually means and whether a machine 
is simply performing kind of a cold computation or whether it actually possesses true imagination or true creativity, and those sorts of elements. Now, in many cases, the kind of machine that might recognize a cat from a dog and it might be performing, you know, a certain algorithm, a neural network that's implemented with processing elements and storage taps and so forth is not really thinking like a living thing would, would do. Uh, but nonetheless, it's considering inputs, it's making decisions, it's, it's using previous history and previous training. So in many ways, it is like a thinking process, uh, but it may not have the full, like, true creativity or emotional response that a living brain might have. You know, it's really interesting because it's not just a linguistic question at its core, because either either the computer is thinking or it's um, simulating something that thinks. And I think the reason those are different is because uh, they speak to what are the limits ultimately of what we can build. You know, Alan Turing way back in his essay was talking about uh, can a machine think? He asked the question, you know, uh, 65 years ago. And he said that the machine may do it a different way, but you still have to call it uh, thinking. So with the caveat, you're not like, uh, you know, at the foref the vanguard of this technology, do you personally call the ball on that one way or the other um, in terms of, of, of machine thought? Yeah, I, I mean, I believe, and I think the, the prevailing view, um, though not everyone, is that many of the machines that we have today, the agents that run in our phones and in the cloud and, and can recognize language and conditions are, are not really yet uh, akin to a, a living brain. Uh, they're very, very useful. They're getting more and more capable. Um, they're able to go faster and move more data and all those things and many metrics are improving, uh, but they still fall short. Um, and there's, a, there's an open question as to just how far you can take uh, that type of architecture. How close can you get? Um, it may get to the point where in some constrained ways it could pass a Turing test and, and if you only had a limited input and output, you couldn't tell the difference between the, the machine and, the, and a person on the other end of the line there. Um, but we're still a long ways away and there are some pretty respected folks who believe that uh, you won't be able to get to creativity and imagination and those things uh, by simply assembling large numbers of, of AND gates and processing elements that you really need to go to a more fundamental description that involves quantum gravity and other effects. And um, uh, most of the machines we have today don't do that. So um, while we have a, a rich roadmap ahead of us with a lot of incredible applications, it's still going to be a while before we really create a real brain. Wow. So there's a lot going on in there. So one thing I just heard was, and, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, um, that you don't believe we can necessarily build an artificial general intelligence using like a von Neumann architecture, like a, a desktop computer, and that what we're, what we're building on that trajectory can get better and better and better and better, but it won't it won't ever have that spark and that what we're going to need are the next generation of quantum computer or just a fundamentally different architecture. And maybe those can emulate a human 
brain's functionality, not necessarily how it does it, but what it can do. Is that fair? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's, that is fair. And I think there are some folks who believe that is the case. Now it's not universally accepted. Um, I'm kind of citing um, some viewpoints um, from folks like physicist Roger Penrose, and, and, and there's a group around him, Penrose Institute, now being formed that are exploring these things. And they will, uh, they will make some very interesting points about the, the model that you use. Like if you take, if you take a, a brain and you try to model a neuron, you can do so um, in an efficient way with a, a couple lines of, uh, of mathematics. And you can replicate that in silicon with gates and processors, and you can put hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of them together. And sure, you can create a, a, a function that learns and, and can recognize images and control motors and do things, and it's good. But whether or not it can actually have true creativity, um, many will argue that you have to, the model has to include uh, effects of quantum gravity. And without that, we won't really have these real brains. And all of the, you know, interesting you read in the press about the, both the fears and the possible benefits of, of these kinds of machines may not happen um, until we reach the point where we're really uh, going beyond, as you said, von Neumann or even uh, other structures just based on gates. Uh, until we get beyond that, uh, those fears or those positive effects, either one, um, may not occur. So let's talk about Penrose for a minute. Uh, his basic thesis, and you probably know this better than I do, but his basic thesis is that Gödel's incompleteness theorem says that, like, because that that the that the system we're building can't actually duplicate uh, what a human brain can do. Or said another way, he says there are certain mathematical problems that are not able to be solved with an algorithm. They're not, they don't, they can't be solved algorithmically, but that a human can solve them. And he uses that to say, therefore, a human brain is not uh, a computational device. It just runs algorithms, that it's doing something. And, and he, of course, thinks, you know, quantum tunneling and, and, and all of that. Um, so do you think that's what's going on in the brain? Do you think the brain is fundamentally non-computational? Well, again, um, I have to be a little reserved with my answer to that because it's not an area that I feel I have a great deep background in. Now, I've met Roger and other folks around him and, and some other folks on the other side of this debate, too. And we've had a lot of discussions. We've worked on... Uh, Computer uh, computational neuroscience at Qualcomm for 10 years. Not 30 years, but 10 years for sure. We started making um, artificial brains that were based on the spiking neuron technique, which is a very biologically inspired technique. And again, they are processing machines and they can do many things, uh, but they can't quite um, do what a, what a real brain can do. An example that was given to me was this, uh, uh, the proof of Fermat's last theorem. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with Fermat's last theorem, um, it was written down, uh, I think, maybe 200 years ago or more. 
and uh, the creator uh, for Matt, a mathematician, uh, wrote in the margin of his notebook that he had a, a proof for it, but then he never got to prove it. I think he, he lost his life. And it wasn't until like about 20 some years ago where uh, a researcher at Berkeley finally proved it. And it's claimed that the insight and creativity required to do that work would not be possible by simply assembling a sufficient number of AND gates and, and training them on the previous geometry and math constructs and then giving it this one and having the proof come out, just not possible. There, there had to be some extra magic there, uh, which Roger and others would argue requires quantum effects. And if you believe that, and I obviously find it very reasonable, and I respect these folks, but I, I don't claim that my, that my own background uh, informs me enough on that one. It seems very reasonable. It mirrors the, the uh, experience we had here for a decade when we were building these kinds of machines. And um, so I think we got a ways to go uh, before, you know, some of these sci-fi type scenarios play out. Um, not that they won't happen, uh, but it's not, not going to be right around the corner. But what is right around the corner is uh, a lot of greatly improved capabilities as these techniques basically fundamentally replace traditional signal processing for many fields. I mean, we're using it for image and sound, of course, but now we're starting to use it in, in cameras and modems and controllers and in complex management of complex systems, uh, all kinds of functions. So um, it's really exciting what's going on, uh, but we still have a ways to go before we get, you know, the ultimate. So to, to reel it in then a little bit, uh, and, well, well, back to the back to the to the theorem you you just referenced. I think, and I could be wrong about this, but I recall that he actually wrote something like there's a simple, a surprisingly simple proof to this uh, theorem, which now some people say he was just wrong. Like whatever he was thinking, there isn't a simple proof for it. But that that because everybody believed there's a proof for it, we eventually solved it. Do you know this story about? Um, a guy named uh, Donzig back in the 30s. He, he was a graduate student in statistics, and his professor had written two programs, two famous unsolved problems on the chalkboard, and said, oh, these are famous unsolved problems. Well, Danzig came, comes in late to class, and he sees them and just assumes they're the homework. So he writes them down and takes them home, and, if, and you can guess, right, he solves them both. And he, he remarked later, they seemed a little harder than normal. So he turned them in, and, and, um, and it was about two weeks before the professor looked at them and realized what they were. Uh, and, and, and it's just fascinating to think that, like, that guy has the same brain I have. I mean, it's far better and all that, but just when you think about, like, all those capabilities that are, that are somewhere probably, probably in there. Anyway, with yeah, regard... Those are, those are wonderful stories. Um... I love them. There, there's one about Gauss when he was six years old or eight years old, and the teacher punished the class, uh, told everyone to add up the numbers from one to 100, and he did it in an instant because he realized that 100 plus zero was 100, and 99 plus one was 100, and 98 plus two, and you could multiply those by 50. And the question is, is a machine based on flip-flops and neural nets and coefficients and weights and, and logistic regression and SVM and those techniques capable of that kind of insight 
And, uh, you know, likely it is not. Um, and, and there's some special magic there required for, for that to actually happen. I will only ask you one more question on that topic, and then let's, let's I'll dial it back in more to the immediate future. You said special magic, and again, I have to ask, like I ask you about think, are you using magic colloquially, or, or is, it, is it all just physics that we don't understand yet? Well, I would, I would, I would argue it's probably the latter. Yeah, okay. um, you know, what term magic, so there's Arthur C. Clarke's famous quote about right. the advanced technology is is you know it's sufficiently like magic right sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and i think uh in this case the the structure uh, of, a, of a real brain and how it actually works might we might think of it as magic until we understand more than we do now uh, but it seems like you have to go into a deeper level and a and a simple function uh assembled from logic gates is not not enough so where would you, so in the more like present day, how would you describe where we are with the science? Because it seems we're at kind of a place where you're still pleasantly surprised when something works. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. That worked. Um, and, and as much as, you know, there are these milestone events like AlphaGo or Watson or or uh, beating the, the, the one that beat the poker players recently. Um, how quickly do you think advances really are coming? Or is it the hope for the advances that's, that's really kind of what's revved up? Well, I, I think the advances are coming very rapidly because there's, a, there's an exponential nature. Uh, you've got machines that, that have processing power, which is increasing in an exponential manner. And whether it continues to do so is another question, but right now it is. You've got memory, which is increasing in an exponential manner. And then you've also got scale, which is the number of these devices that, are, that exist and your ability to connect to them. And I'd really like to get into that a little bit too, is, is the ability of a user to tap into a huge amount of resource. So you've got all of those combined with algorithmic improvements, and especially right now, just such a tremendous interest in the industry to work on these things. So lots of very talented graduates are pouring into the field. And the, the product of all those effects is causing very, very rapid improvement. And even though in some cases the fundamental algorithm might be based on an idea from the 70s or 80s, we're able to refine that algorithm. We're able to couple that with far more processing power and a much lower cost than as ever before. And um, as a result, uh, we're getting incredible capabilities. I was fortunate enough to, to have a dinner with uh, the head of uh, a Google Translate project um, recently, and he told me, an incredibly nice guy, uh, that that program is now one of the largest AI projects in the world. It has a billion users. So a billion users can walk around with their device and basically speak any language and listen to any language or read it. And uh, that's a tremendous accomplishment. That's really, really a powerful thing and a very good thing. And so, yeah, those things are happening right now. Uh, we're in an era of rapid, rapid improvement in, in those capabilities. And what do you think is going to be 
the next kind of watershed event. I mean, we're going to have these incremental advances and there's going to be, you know, more self-driving cars and they're going to be, you know, the, all, all of these things that kind of, but, but these moments that kind of capture the popular imagination, like when the best Go player in the world loses. Um, what do you think will be another one of those for the future? Well, I think we're going to have, uh, you know, when you talk about the Go and the Watson playing Jeopardy and those things, uh, those are, you know, significant events, but they're, they're machines that someone wheels in and, and they're, they're big machines and they hook them up and they run. And you don't really have them available in the mobile environment. And we're on the verge now of having that kind of computing power, not just available to one person doing a game show or the Go champion in a special setting, but available to everyone at a reasonable cost, uh, wherever they are at any time. And, and also to be able to benefit the, the learning experience of one person can, can uh, benefit the, the rest. And so that I think is the next step. It's 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 when you use that capability, which is already growing as I described, and make it available in a in a mobile environment ubiquitously at reasonable cost. Then you're going to have incredible things, and you might see. Uh, so autonomous vehicles is an example because that's a mobile thing needs a lot of processing power, and we and it needs processing power local to it on the device, but also needs to access uh, tremendous capability in the network, and it needs to do so at high reliability and the latency, and there's some interesting details there. So vehicles is, is uh, a very good example. Um, vehicles is also something that uh, we need to improve dramatically from a safety standpoint versus where we are today. Uh, it, it, it's critical to the economies of cities and nations, so a lot of scale. So yeah, that's a good crucible for this. But there are many others, uh, medical devices, huge applications there. And again, you, you want, uh, in many cases, a very powerful capability sort of in the cloud or in the network, but also uh, at the device, there are many cases where you'd want to be able to do some processing right there. Uh, that can make the device more powerful or more economical. And, and that's a mobile use case. So I think there will be applications there. Um, there can be applications in education, um, entertainment, certainly games, um, management of resources like power and, and uh, uh, electricity and, and heating and cooling and all that. So it's, it's really a, a wide swath, um, but the combination of connectivity with this capability together is really going really gonna to do it. So let's talk about the immediate future. As you know, with regard to these technologies, there's kind of three different narratives that, about um, their effect on employment. One is that they're going to take uh, every single job, every, you know, everybody from, you know, the, from a poet on down. That doesn't sound like something you would, that would resonate with you because of, of the conversation we just had. The other two are, one is that this technology is going to take, replace a lot of low-skilled workers. There's going to be fewer, quote, low-skilled jobs, whatever, whatever those are, and that you're going to have kind of this permanent underclass of unemployed people competing essentially with machines for work. And then there's another narrative that says 
know what's going to happen is the same thing that happened with electricity, with motors, with everything else. People take that technology, they use it to increase their own productivity, and they go on to, um, to, to raise their income that way. And you're not going to have essentially any disruption, just like you didn't have any disruption when we went from animal power to machine power. Which, which of those narratives do you identify with, or is there a different way you would say it? Okay, I'm glad you asked us because this is a hugely important question. And I do want to make some comments. Now, um, I've had the benefit of, of participating in the World Economic Forum, and I've talked to, uh, like, Ben Johnson and McAfee, the authors of The Second Machine Age. And, and um, the, whole, the whole theme of the, the forum a year ago was uh, Klaus Schwab's book, The Fourth Industrial Age, and what the rise of cyber physical systems and what impact it will have. So I think we know from history some things, and then the question is, is the future going to repeat that or not? So we know that there's the so-called Luddite fallacy, which says that when these machines come, they're going to displace all the jobs. And we know that a 1,000 years ago, 99% of the population was involved in food production, and today only like, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but it's like half of a percent or something like that. Um, and because we had massive productivity gains, uh, we didn't need to have that many people working on food production, and they found the ability to do other things. And it's, it's definitely true that increases in uh, unemployment did not keep pace with increases in productivity. Uh, productivity went up, you know, orders of magnitude. Unemployment did not go up, quote, on orders of magnitude. And that's been the history for a thousand years. And even more recently, if you look at the government statistics on productivity, they are not increasing. It's actually, in some case, some people are alarmed, but they're not increasing faster than they are. They don't really reflect a, a spike up uh, that would suggest some of these negative scenarios. Now, ha having said that, it is true um, that we, we are at a place now where the machines, um, even with their processing uh, that they use today, based on neural networks and SVMs and things like that, they are able to replace a lot of the existing sort of manual or, or repetitive type tasks. So I think society as a whole is going to benefit tremendously. And there's going to be some groups that, that we have to take some care about. And, you know, there's been discussions of universal basic incomes, which I think is a good idea. Uh, Bill Gates recently had an article about some tax ideas for machines. Um, it's a good idea, of course. Uh, very hard to implement because you have to define what a robot is and, you know, something like a car or a wheel. A wheel is a labor-saving device. You tax it? I, I don't know. Um, so. To, to kind of get back to your question, I think it is true that there will be some groups that are short-term displaced, but there's no horizon where uh, many things that people do, like caring for each other, like teaching each other, uh, um, those kinds of jobs are not going away. They're in ever-increasing demand, and so there'll be a migration, not necessarily a wholesale replacement, and we do have to take care with the, the transient effect of that. And maybe a universal type of uh, wage might be part of an answer. 
Um, and then there's, I don't claim to have the answer completely. I mean, it's obviously a really hard problem that the world is grappling with. But I do feel fundamentally that the overall effect of all of this is going to be net positive. Uh, we're going to make more efficient use of our resources. We're going to provide services and capabilities uh, that have never been possible before that everyone can have. And it's going to be a net positive. So, so that's an optimistic view. But I'm curious, it's, it's a very measured optimistic view. So let me play devil's advocate from, from that side to say, why do you think there'll be any disruption? Like, what is that, what is that case look like? Because if you think about it, in 1995, if somebody said, hey, you know what? Um, if we take a bunch of computers and we uh, connect them all via TCP IP and we build a protocol, maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, HTTP to communicate and maybe, uh, maybe a markup language like HTML, uh, and then we do that, uh, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be uh, 2 billion people connect. It's going to create trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth. It's going to create Google and eBay and Amazon. It's going to, and Baidu, and it's going to, it's going to transform every aspect of society and it's going to do all of this and create all of these enormous number of jobs and, and Etsy will come along and people will be able to work from home and, and all these thousands of things that float out of it. You never would have made those connections, right? You never would have said, oh, yeah, that logically flows from snapping a bunch of computers together. So if we really are in a technological boom that's going to dwarf that, really won't the problem be an immense shortage of people for, there's going to be all of these opportunities and very few people relatively to fill them. So why, why the measured optimism for somebody who just waxed so poetic about what a big deal these technologies are? Okay, that's a great question. I mean, that, that was super. You asked, will there be any disruption at all? I completely believe that, that uh, we really have not a job shortage, but a skills shortage. That is the issue. And so the burden goes then to the educational system um, and the fabric of society to be able to place a value on a good education and stick to it long enough that you can come up to speed in the modern sense and be able to contribute beyond what the machines do. And that is going to be a shortage, and anyone who has those skills is going to be able to have a good situation. But, but you can have disruption even in that environment. You can have an environment where you have a skill shortage, not a job shortage, and there's disruption because the skill shortage gets worse. And there's a lot of individuals whose previous skills are no longer useful and they need to change. And that's the tough thing. How do you retrain in a transient case when, this, uh, when these advancements come very quickly? Um, how, do you, how do you manage that? Um, what is fair? How does society distribute its wealth? I mean, the mechanisms are going to change. So right now, it's starting to become true that just simply the manner in which you consume stuff, if that data is available, that has value in itself. And maybe people should be compensated for it. Um, today, they're not as much. They give it up when they sign into the major cloud players' services. And so those kinds of things will have to change. But I, I do believe... Uh, you know, I'll give you I'll give you an anecdote. Um, recently, I went to I went to Korea, and I met some startups there. And one of the things that that happens is, um, especially in non curated app stores, is uh, people develop games, 
they put and they put in their effort and time and they develop a game and they put it on there and people download it for 99 cents or whatever and they get some money but there are some bad actors that will see a new game they'll quickly download it unassemble the, the language back to the source change a few little things and republish that same game um, that looks and feels just like the original, but the 99 cents goes to a different place. And they basically steal the work. And so this is a bad thing. And in response, there are startups now that make tools that create software that makes it difficult to unassemble. There are multiple startups that do what I just described. And I'm sitting here listening to them and I'm realizing, wow, that job, in fact, that industry didn't even exist. That is a new creation of the fact that there are uncurated app stores and mobile devices and games and blah, blah, blah. And it's an example of the kind of new thing that's created uh, didn't exist before. And, and I believe that uh, process is alive and well, and we're going to continue to see more of it, and there's going to continue to be a skill shortage more than a job shortage. And so that's why I kind of have a fundamentally positive view but it is going to be challenging to, to, to meet the demands of that, of that skill shortage. I mean, society has to place the right value on that type of education. And uh, we all have to, you know, work together to make, make that happen. So you had kind of two different threads going on there. One is this idea that we have a skill shortage, we need to rethink education. And another one was uh, that you touched on a, a different way that, that, that money flows around, can people be compensated for their data, and so forth. I'd like to talk about the first one. And again, uh, I'd like to challenge the measured amount of your optimism. So, and, and I'll start off by saying I agree with you, that when the United States, um, when the, there, there was a, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there was a, a vigorous debate in the United States about the value of post-literacy education. Like, think about that. Is post-literacy education worth anything? Because in an, ag, an agrarian society, maybe it wasn't for most people. Once you learned to read, that was what you needed. And then people said, no, no, the jobs of the future are going to need more education. We should invest in that now. And the United States became the first country in the world to guarantee that every single person could go to high school, could graduate high school. And that you can make a really good case that I completely believe that that was a major source of our economic ascendancy uh, in the 20th century. And therefore, you can extend the argument by saying maybe we need grades 13 and 14 now, and they're vocational, and, and we need to do that again. I'm with you entirely. But we don't have that right now. And so what's going to happen? And so here, here's where I would, I would question the measured amount of your optimism, which is People often say to me, look, this technology creates all these new jobs at kind of the high end, you know, like graphic designers and geneticists and programmers, and it destroys jobs at the low end. Uh, are those people down at the low end going to become programmers? And, and of course, the answer is not yes. The answer is um, all that matters, and here's my question, all that matters is can everybody do a job just a little harder than the one they're currently doing? And if the answer to that is yes, then what happens is the, the, the college biology professor becomes a geneticist, the high school biology teacher becomes a college teacher, the substitute teacher gets backfilled into the biology one, and, and all the way down so that 
everybody gets just a little step up. Everybody, everybody just has to push themselves a little more and, and the whole system phase shifts up and everybody gets a raise and everybody gets a promotion. That's really what happened in the industrial revolution. So why, why, why is it that you don't think that that is going to be as smooth as I have just painted it? Well, I think what you described it does happen um, and is happening. If you look at, you take any, now again, I'm speaking from my own kind of experience here um, as an engineer in a high-tech company. You take any engineer in a high-tech company and you look at their output right now and you compare it to a year or two before, they've all done what you described, which is to do a little bit more and to, to do something that's a little bit harder. And, and we've all been able to do that because the fundamental processes uh, in, involved um, improve. The tools, the, the fabric available to you to design things, uh, the shared experience of the teams around you that you tap into, all those things improve. So everyone is actually uh, doing a job that's a little bit harder than they did before, at least if you're a designer. Um, you also cited some other examples like a, a, a teacher at one level going to the next level. Um, that's that's a kind of a cue, and there's only so many spots at, at at so many levels based on the demographics of the population. So not everyone can move in that direction, um, but they can all uh, at a given education, a given grade level, I should say, uh, endeavor to teach more. Like our kids, have, uh, the math they do now is unbelievable. Um, they're like it's you know, much as a year or so ahead of, of when, when I was in high school and, and I thought that we were doing pretty good stuff then. Now it's even, even more. So um, I am optimistic that those things are going to happen, but you do have labor force um, of, of certain types of jobs um, where people have maybe been doing them for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden that is displaced. Um, it's hard to ask someone who's done, uh, you know, a repetitive task for much of their career to suddenly uh, do something more sophisticated and different. Um, and so that is the problem uh, that we as a society have to address. We have to still value, um, you know, those individuals and find a way to, you know, like a universal wage or so something like that to, to uh, to you know keep so they can still have a, a good experience um because if you don't then you really could have a dangerous situation so again i i feel overall positive and i think there's some pockets that are going to require some difficult thinking and, and we got to grapple with it all right well so again i i agree with your overall premise but i will point out that that's exactly what everybody said about the farmers that you can't take these people that farm for 20 or 30 years and all of a sudden expect them to be able to work in a factory. Like the, the, the rhythm of the day is different. They have a supervisor, there's bells that ring, they have to do different jobs, all of this stuff. And yet that's exactly what happened. Uh, and and I, I think there's a tendency to short uh, human ability, I think. That being said, you know, there's all kinds of structural changes that te technological, Technological advance, interestingly, distributes its financial gains in a, in a, in a, a very unequal measure. And there is something in there that, that I do agree we need to 
um, think about. So let's talk about uh, Qualcomm. So what's you're, you are the EVP of technology. You were the CTO. You've got 70 patents, like I said in your intro. What is Qualcomm's role in, in this world? How are you working to build the better tomorrow? Okay, great. So we are, uh, we connect, we provide connections uh, between people and, and more increasingly between people, the, their worlds and, and between devices. Now, let me be specific about what I mean by that. When the company started, by the way, I've been at Qualcomm since 91. Uh, company started in uh, 85, 86 timeframe. And one of the first things we did early on was we improved the performance and capacity of cellular networks by a huge amount. And that allowed operators like, uh, you know, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, oh, they had different names back then, but um, to offer initially voice services to large numbers of people uh, at reasonably low costs and the devices, uh, thanks to the work of Qualcomm and, and others, uh, were got smaller and longer battery life and so forth. And as time went on, uh, it was originally connecting people with voice and text, and then it became faster and more capable, so you could do pictures and then videos, and then you could connect with, you know, social networks and web pages and streaming, and you could share large amounts of information. And we're in an era now where I don't just send a text message and say, oh, I'm, I'm skiing down this slope, isn't this cool? I can have a 360-degree, real-time, high-quality, low-latency sharing of my entire experience with another user or users somewhere else, and they can be there with me. And there's all kinds of interesting, uh, both uh, consumer applications, but industrial and, and, and medical and commercial applications for that. So we're working on that, and, and we're a leading developer of the, the connectivity technology and also what you do with it on the endpoints, the processors, the camera systems, the user interfaces, the security frameworks that go with it, and now increasingly the machine learning and AI capabilities we're applying it, of course, to smartphones, but also to automobile, to medical devices, to robotics, industrial cases. Um, and we're very excited about the uh, pending arrival of what we call 5G, which is the next generation of cellular technology. And it's going to show up in 2019, 2020 timeframe. It's going to be in the field maybe 10, 15 years, just like the previous generations were. And it's going to provide, uh, again, another big step in the performance of your radio link. And when I say performance, I mean the speed, of course, but also the latency will be very low. In many modes, it can be millisecond or less. That allows you to do functions that used to be on one side of the link, you can do on the other side. Uh, you can have very reliable systems. So it's just going to be... Uh, it, you know, there are a thousand companies participating in the standards process for this. It used to be just primarily the telecom industry in the past for 3G and 4G. Of course, telecom industry is very much still involved, but there are so many other businesses that will be enabled uh, with 5G uh, that we're just super excited about um, the impact it's going to have on many, many businesses.
so yeah, that's what we're that's what we're up to these days. Well, well, go with that a little more. Like paint paint us this picture of. I'm sure you've got kind of. I don't know if you remember those commercials back in the '90s about you know will you can you imagine sending a fax from the beach? You will, and can you imagine? Um, you know, and and they kind of all came true, other than the, there wasn't as much faxing as I think they expected. But uh, what do you think? Like, tell me some of the things you think that, in a reasonable amount of time, uh, we're going to be able to do in, in five years. I'm so fascinated that you use that example because that that one I know very very well. Those AT and T commercials, uh, you can still watch them on YouTube, and it's fun to do so. Um, they did say you could be able to send a fax from the beach, and that. That particular ad motivated the operators to want to send fax over cellular networks, and we worked on that. I worked on that myself. Um, we used that as a, as a way to build the fundamental Internet transport, and the fax was kind of the motivation for it. But later, uh, we used the Internet transport for Internet access, and it became uh, a much, much bigger thing. Um, so the next step will be... Uh, sharing of fully immerse, immersive experiences. So you can uh, have high speed, low latency video in, in both directions. Um, autonomous vehicles uh, that, um, but you know, before we even get to a fully autonomous, because there's some debate, we can have a similar debate about, you know, when we're going to get to a car that, that you can get into with no steering wheel and just takes you where you want to go. That's still a hard problem. But be before we have fully autonomous cars that can take you around uh, without a steering wheel, we're going to have a set of technologies that improve the safety of semi-autonomous cars. Um, and those are things like lane assist and better cruise control and better visibility at night and better navigation and those, those sorts of things. Um, we're also working on vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication. Uh, which is a, another application of low latency and can be used to improve safety. And I'll give you a quick anecdote on that. Um, in some sense, we already have a form of it. It's called brake lights. Right now, when you're driving down the highway and the car in front puts on the lights, you see that, and then you take action. You may slow down or whatever. Or you can see a whole bunch of brake lights going if the traffic is starting to back up, and then that alerts you to slow down. And then brake lights have transitioned from incandescent bulbs, which take like 100 milliseconds to turn on, to LED bulbs, which take like one millisecond to turn on. And if you multiply out 100 milliseconds at highway speeds, it's, it's you know, six, eight feet, depending on the speed. And you, uh, you realize that low latency can save lives and to make the system more effective. So that's one of the hallmarks of, of 5G is, is we're going to be able to connect things at low latency uh, to improve the safety or the function, or in the case of machine learning, um, where sometimes, sometimes you want processing to be done in the phone, and sometimes you want to access enormous processing in the cloud or at the edge. And when we say edge in this context, we mean something very close to the phone within a small number of hops or routes to, to get to that processing. Um, if you do that, you can have uh, incredible capability that wasn't possible before. And, and to give you an example of what I'm talking about, um, I went recently to the Mobile World Congress America show in San Francisco, and it's a great show. 
and I walked through the Verizon booth and I saw a demonstration that they had made. And in their demonstration, they had taken a small consumer drone, and I mean it's a really tiny one, one that's just like, you know, two or three inches uh, long, that costs $18. And all this little thing did was send back videos, uh, live video, and then you controlled it with Wi-Fi, and they had it following a red balloon. And the way it followed it was it sent the video to a very powerful edge processing computer, which then uh, performed a sophisticated computer vision and control algorithm, and then sent the commands back. And so what you saw was this little low-cost device doing something very sophisticated and powerful because it had a low-latency connection to a lot of processing power. And then just to really complete that, they switched it from local process, from edge computing that was right there at the booth to a cloud-based computing service that was 50 milliseconds away. And once they did that, the, the little demo wouldn't function anymore. So they were showing the power of low-latency, high-speed video and media-type communication that enabled a, a simple device to do something uh, similar to a much more complex device in real time, and they can offer that almost like a service. So that paradigm is very powerful, and it applies to many different use cases. It's enabled by high-performance connectivity, which is you know, something that we supply, and we're very proficient at that. And it, it impacts in machine learning because it gives you, uh, again, w uh, different ways to take advantage of, of the progress there, you can do it locally, you can do it on the edge, you can do it remotely. And um, you know, when you combine mobile and the, all the investment that's been made there, you leverage that to apply to other devices like automobiles, uh, medical devices, robotics, um, other kinds of consumer products like wearables and, and assistant speakers and those kinds of things. Uh, there's just a vast landscape of, of technologies and services that all can be improved by what we've done and what 5G will bring. And, and so that's why we're, we're pretty fired up about the, the next iteration here. So have you, I assume you have done kind of theoretical thinking about the absolute maximum rate at which data can be transferred. Um, are we 1% the way there or 10% or can't even measure what's so small? Like, is this going to go on forever? I'm so glad you asked that. It's, uh, it's so interesting. On this morning, this Monday morning, we just put a new piece of artwork in our research center, and there's a piece of artwork on every floor. And on the first floor, when you walk right in, uh, there's a piece of artwork that has uh, Claude Shannon and a number of his equations, including the famous one, which is the Shannon capacity limit. That's the first thing you see when you walk into the research center at Qualcomm. And that governs how fast you can move data across a link. And you can't beat it. There's no way, any more than you can go faster than the speed of light. So the question is, how close are we to that limit? And if you have just two devices, uh, two antennas, and a given amount of spectrum, and a given amount of power, then we can get pretty darn close to that limit. But 
the question is not that. The question is, are we close to how fast of a service we can offer a mobile user in a, in a dense area? And to that question, the answer is we're nowhere close. We still can get significantly better, and, and by that I mean orders of magnitude better than we are now. And I can tell you three ways that that can be accomplished, and we're doing all three of them. Number one is we continue to make uh, you know, better modems that are more efficient, better receivers, better equalizers, better antennas, all of those techniques, and 5G is an example of that. Number two, we always work with the regulator and the operators to bring more spectrum, more radio spectrum to bear. Uh, only if you look at an overall spectrum chart, only a sliver of it is really used for mobile communication. And we're going to be able to use a lot more of it and use more spectrum at high frequencies, like millimeter wave and, and above. Uh, that's going to make a, a lot more highway, so to speak, for, for data transfer. And then the third thing is the average radius of a, of a base station can shrink. And we can use that channel over and over and over again. So right now, you know, if you drive a drive your car and you listen to a radio station, um, the, the radio industry cannot use that channel again until you get hundreds of miles away. <clears throat> in, in the modern cellular systems, we're learning how to reuse that channel uh, even when you're a very short distance away and potentially only feet or tens of meters away, you can use it again and again and again. So with those three pillars, there's, we're really not close, and, and everyone can, can look forward to uh, faster, faster, faster modems, and, and every time uh, we move that modem speed up, that, of course, is the foundation for bigger screens and, and more video and new use cases that weren't possible before at a given price point, which now become possible. And uh, we're, not, uh, we're not at the end yet. We've got, we got a long ways to go. Well, you, you made a passing reference um, to whether Moore's Law, well, you didn't call it out, but the exponential growth of the speed of computers would increase. But is there any reason that, I mean, you know, everybody always says, uh, is Mars Law finally over? And uh, you see those headlines all the time. And like all headlines that are a question, the answer is almost always no. Uh, and, and you've made references to quantum computing and all that. Don't we have opportunities to increase processor speed uh, in, well into the future with like completely different architectures? Oh, we do. Um, we absolutely do. And I, and I believe that the, they will occur. I mean, we're not at the limit yet. Now, um, you can find Moore's Law is over articles uh, 10 years ago also. And somehow it hasn't yet happened. Now, when we get past uh, three nanometers, yeah, certain things are going to get really, really tough. Uh, but then there will be new approaches um, that will that will take us there, take us to the next step. Um, there's also architectural improvements and other other axes that can be exploited. Same thing as I just described to you in wireless. Uh, Shannon has said we can only go so far between two ang two antennas and a given amount of spectrum and a given amount of power. But we can skate that by increasing the spectrum, increasing the number of distance uh, between the antennas, reusing the spectrum over and over again, and we can still get the job done without breaking any fundamental laws. So um, 
it's at least for the time being, uh, the exponential growth is still very much intact. You know, you've mentioned Claude Shannon twice. He's a, he's a fascinating character. And, and one of the things he did that, that's kind of, I think, um, monumental was that paper he wrote in 49 or 50 can, about how a computer could play chess. And he actually, you know, figured out kind of an algorithm for that. And what was really fascinating about that is this was one of the first times somebody looked at a computer and saw something other than a calculator. Because up until that point, they, they just did math. And that, you know, that intuitive leap to say, here's how you would make a computer do something other than math. But it's really doing math. So there's a, there's a fascinating new book about him out called A Mind at Play that, uh, that I just read that I, I recommend. Um, so we're running out of time here. We're wrapping up. I'm curious, do you, uh, do you write or do you have a place that people who want to follow you can, uh, can, can keep track of what you're up to? Um, well, I have, uh, I don't have a lot there, but I do, uh, I do have a Twitter and, uh, once in a while I'll, share a few thoughts. I uh, should probably do more of that than I do. Uh, I have an internal blog, which I should probably do more than I do. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry to say, I, I don't, I'm not very prolific on, uh, on external um, writing. And so that's my, something I would love to do more of. <laughs> yeah, and my final question is, are you a consumer of science fiction? You quoted Arthur C. Arthur C. Clarke earlier. And I'm curious if you read it or go to, you know, TV or movies or what have you. And if so, do you have any visions of the future that, that are in fiction that you, that you kind of identify with? Yes, I will answer an emphatic yes to that. I love all forms of science fiction. And uh, one of my favorites is Star Trek. Um, you know, my name spelled backwards is Borg. And... Uh, <laughs> In fact, our, our chairman, Paul Jacobs, I've worked for him, you know, most of my career, he, he calls me Locutus. Um, but there's a, there's a moment uh, that, I, given the discussion we just had, um, if you're a fan of Star Trek, and in particular, the next generation uh, shows that were on in the 80s and early 90s, there was, a, there was an episode where Commander Data uh, met uh, Mr. Spock. And that was really a good one because you had commander data who's an android and is wants to be human wants to have emotion and creativity and those things that we discussed but can't quite get there meeting mr spock who's a living thing and trying to purge all emotion and and so forth to just be pure logic and they have they had an interaction and uh i, I thought that was just really interesting but yes i i follow all science fiction um i like the uh the book physics of star treks by uh, kraus of, of arizona i got to meet him once and it's amazing how many of the devices and concepts uh, from science fiction have become science fact in fact the only difference between science fiction and science fact is time uh, over time we've pretty much built um everything that people have thought up, communicators, replicators, computers. Um, I know, you, you, can't, you, you know. can't see one of those in-ear Bluetooth devices and not see Uhura, 
right? Like that's what she had. Correct. Uh, yeah. That that little earpiece is a is a Bluetooth device. The communicator is a flip phone. The little square memory cartridges were like the floppy disks from the '80s. Um, you know, 3D printers are replicators. We also have software replicators that can replicate and transport. We we kind of have hardware, but not quite the way they do yet. But we'll get there. Do you um, think? Do you think that these science fiction worlds? anticipate the world or inadvertently create it do we have flip phones because of star trek or did star trek foresee the flip phone no i believe their influence is undeniable i, mean, I, I think the creative, I a lot of times they say yeah. it right they say oh i saw that and i wanted to do that i wanted to build that when you know there's an x prize for making a tricorder you know that that came from that came from you know star trek we, okay. we were the sponsor of that X Prize, and we were highly involved in that. And um, yep, that's exactly the inspiration of that was a portable device that could diagnose, uh, make a bunch of diagnoses, and that is exactly what took place. And now we have real ones. Well, I want to thank you for a fascinating hour. I want to thank you um, for for going on all of these uh, these tangents. It was really fascinating. Wonderful. Well, thank you as well. I, I also really enjoyed it. And uh, anytime you want to follow up or talk some more, uh, please don't hesitate. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.